Hello and welcome back. Today we have a list of questions that I got from a viewer, and um, most of it seems to be focused on uh, the topic of loneliness, and that's been a topic that we've explored before, um, particularly in regards to things like schizophrenia and potentially other mental illnesses as a kind of um, major factor that might play a role in developing and worsening the symptoms, and especially in a very feedback loop kind of way where um, you become more lonely, this kind of pushes a person to uh, differentiate from uh, the crowd, and this causes them further isolation, and um, you know, in a way, this is kind of like evolution. It's like uh, kind of the whole, uh, uh, the way that evolution happens on islands, for example, like if you've heard of those finches where they've all evolved to be different, uh, because they're isolated on islands, I think that you could imagine that some each subculture and each uh, maybe even the mainstream culture are kind of like islands and continents and stuff like that. And then if a person were to become isolated from that for a long time, there is a lot of uh, kind of mimetic evolution that is taking place and causing both the mainstream culture people and the uh, isolated person to differentiate and evolve differently uh, in terms of their beliefs and um, the memes that are popular at the time and the behaviors that are socially normalized. And uh, of course, if you don't follow those uh, norms, uh, you will not easily be accepted into a group. And this can be painful, and it can cause uh, problems in many ways, Like, uh, which is probably pretty apparent. Uh, so I don't know if I should go into that just yet. Uh, we might start now with some of these questions. So... Um, so I guess this is the part where the introduction song is going to be... Hi, and welcome. This is Quirky Science, where we discuss crazy ideas. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. question, and I'll, I'll give a warning, I have not fully 
read all of these questions. So this is a little bit spontaneous, but I wanted to get to this because it's been quite a while since I got these uh, questions. And um, to be honest, I was a little intimidated by the length of them, but actually I think that's perfect because there's probably going to be a decent amount of content. And if there are viewers at the time that I'm towards the end of this, uh, like live viewers, then I will start to take questions from them, and uh, I sort of decided to spontaneously stream this on a Friday, and um, so, Friday morning, and uh, so I am not too sure that there were, there are going to be any people by the end of it, uh, but if there are, that could get kind of interesting. Okay, so let's start. I'm going to just read this straight off and then kind of address it. There's different kinds of loneliness and isolation. Some people don't experience the feeling of loneliness all that intensely, even if they're alone for long periods of time. Why do some people experience loneliness frequently and intensely? What makes people sensitized versus immune to the effects of bullying or social alienation? So I think there's a lot to this question. So to begin, um, so in terms of loneliness and its relation to isolation, I don't think that they have to be directly connected. I think that loneliness is more about your perception of the situation. Um, so when people are feeling lonely, it sort of implies that they do not wish to be alone. It doesn't, it, uh, being alone might not necessarily cause this feeling of loneliness. Um, so, and there's a lot that goes into this feeling. It's mostly not necessarily even based on whether you are alone or not in a physical sense, but it is almost entirely based on your perspective on your situation, how you conceptualize the situation that you are in socially. So for example, people will often still feel lonely sometimes, even if they're in a crowd. And in, in the most obvious case, you might feel lonely and just be in a public space, like say you're in the middle of New York and there's thousands of people surrounding you, um, that wouldn't necessarily fix your sense of loneliness, but in a way you aren't physically isolated. And I think a lot of people, when they think of loneliness, they think um, that it has to do with like the amount of friends that you have or the amount of people that you're exposed to on a daily basis or something like that. But I think that in a lot of cases, people feel lonely if they are uh, kind of not heard by other people or not understood and not, in a, and not in a sense relating to other people. And this is kind of what I experience a lot of. Like I often feel that my interests and hobbies kind of have left me isolated and I I do believe that there are others out there I just don't think that I often talk to those kind of 
people. For example, there are video games that I play that I know are popular, but I don't have anyone to play them with, and this often makes me feel kind of um, alone, in a sense. And it feels like I'm playing life in single-player mode on some level. And um, there are lots of other things about my life that I don't really feel I connect with the people around me. And, um, I mean, that, that, that's like a whole story I can get into. Um, but that might be kind of tangential. So, uh, so I think what causes people to feel loneliness is if they think that their life is somehow upsetting because of the fact that they feel they can't bond with other people about the things that they want to bond with others about. So that's a little bit more specific than just being isolated. It's much more specific. And um, you can, as I've said, you can be surrounded by people and feel lonely. I think that having certain experiences can be alienating even. Um, you can imagine if an immigrant comes to this country and doesn't have any friends who have shared that experience of traveling to this country, they would be quite lonely in that regard and feel kind of uh, separated from other people and kind of... Um, probably misunderstood a lot of the time and yearning for some sort of uh, other people that they can connect with in that way. And so like that kind of idea is going to come in a little bit more as I noticed. Um, there's another question that kind of gets into that in a little bit. Okay, so what makes people sensitized or immune to the effects of bullying or social alienation? I think that's highly contextual. Uh, what makes people sensitize is probably if they feel, I think that one of the factors would be if you feel that it's like the world against you, that's going to come, come, come off worse than if you feel it's like 5% of the world is against you. I think a lot of people would actually be able to just dismiss uh, if it's like a small amount of people. Not in all cases, it really depends. Like, if, obviously, if someone's being heavily abused by a single person and everyone else is nice, that's still going to be very impactful. Um, but, in t but if it's like some random person that you hardly interact with and they say something mean and everyone else says something nice, it's probably less impactful than if everyone were to say mean things constantly. And so I think that that kind of context is especially important there. And then another thing would be someone who has had experiences in the past that have left them kind of scarred by being bullied. I think that that will make it so that even in subtle hints that that's occurring, that you're being bullied, will become amplified just by the anticipation that it could escalate. Uh, kind of just a conditioned response. So I think people who've had particularly childhood experiences that left 
lasting imprinting in their mind and kind of shaped them how they emotionally react to the world i think that those people will be more heavily sensitized and um in terms of being immune to it i think that having experiences later in life after you've already developed a kind of secure sense of being liked by other people i think that being bullied you would more easily dismiss it as just a kind of like this person is a problematic person and it isn't really about me because everyone else seems to like me like i think that's kind of how that could go down and that would leave you somewhat immune to it in a sense i think there's other factors that probably play a role genetically like how sensitive you are in general to stressors or how resilient you are to them um and the same can go for social alienation i think a lot of cases of social alienation can be bullying uh, you can be kind of suddenly ostracized from a group that you trusted and become uh, betrayed and so that uh, experiences like that particularly in childhood again will uh, probably leave you very afraid of it happening again so you will become very sensitive of any any uh, sense that that's occurring so any slight hint that people are planning to reject you you might uh, become reactive because uh, it brings back the memories of what you've experienced before and it also might worry you that it's going to happen again So the next question, loneliness is hugely important when considering our consciousness because it's basically the feeling of connectedness to other forms of consciousness, including one's own self. It's like another sense, like hunger. How connected are you as a proxy for how alive you are and how meaningful your life is? Now this one's interesting. This one gets a little bit weird. Um... But there was something I was actually I was actually having a conversation with someone uh, two days ago, and we got into this topic when, but it was in a from a little bit of a different angle. The way that we approached it was um, questioning the boundaries of what makes what am I, and what are ourselves in general. Like, would I consider? my hands to be my part of myself is the fact that i control my hands uh, does that imply that that is part of me um, so if that is the case then even me speaking right now is influencing your brain and i'm doing it in a directed way in order to control parts of your brain related to language processing right i'm basically feeding you ideas using my own mind so in the same way that i learned to control my hands i've learned to control sounds coming from this coming from my mouth uh, in such a way that it influences your brain with potentially the hope that it influences your behavior in the long term so 
And even in the short term, the way it influences your brain is that, does that mean that part of your brain is actually part of me too, in the same way that my hands are part of me? And uh, so if we run with this kind of idea of the kind of extended consciousness or something like that, or extended self, then uh, how much of, how expansive your, your self is would depend on how much power you have in society or among people in general. So someone like an influencer might presumably be inf influencing a lot of people or a politician or um, just maybe technology engineers or uh, the like say Mark Zuckerberg or something like that. Like these people, their extended self might be quite far reaching. But then on the extreme opposite, what if you were trapped completely in this isolated dark dungeon with no contact to anyone else? Is that the smallest form of self that one can achieve? Um, so I think it, it's pretty interesting. Um, and uh, so that kind of ties into this idea of how alive you are, right? That was kind of asked in the original question. Um, but if you go the opposite way, uh, maybe what you are is only uh, some very, very small part of your brain. I'm not even sure, Not maybe not even your brain, but uh, something that seems to be associated with your brain activity. And um, I don't know. I don't know how small that would be because in the same way that you learn to control your hands, you learn to control parts of your brain, and maybe you're learning to control, like, say, your speech centers of your brain or learning how to learn, learning how to see. So what really, which part would be you if we go the opposite way? Uh, the non-extended self, like the some sort of, I don't know, true self or something. Um, and I don't really have a conclusion in that on that topic. Okay, so the next one, I want to better understand what factors modulate this sense of connectedness. So I think we kind of can kind of explored that a little bit. Uh, so this didn't actually connect too much to loneliness. Um, so how might this connect to loneliness? This might connect in terms of uh, maybe this uh, concern for loneliness is an evolved mechanism to expand the self as an evolutionary advantage. But it gets really weird because uh, the more interconnected humans are, they are all kind of becoming parts of each other, right? Like I am having control over many people's brains and they too are having control over my brain and other people's brain as well. So I think that that's kind of as far as I can think of right now about how 
or what kind of factors might modulate connectedness. Okay, so the next one. Let's see, social isolation can be seen as a deprivation of necessary slash beneficial feedback from the environment, uh, parentheses social. As in, if you have, if you assume a person needs a certain amount or kind of social interaction and feedback in order to stay sane and healthy, depriving them of that will essentially push their brain towards less healthy dynamics or ones that, le that are less conducive to sanity and functioning. The lack of stimulation and the unmet emotional and psychological needs will increase the likelihood of resorting to substances or other addictive behaviors for escape or temporary relief, which can exacerbate loneliness. So this one doesn't seem to be a question, but uh, I will make some comments on this. I do agree with most of this. I think it really depends, though. I think that it's possible for a social um, group to be toxic and that being a part of that can actually be detrimental. But I don't know how far that can go because... Um, because of the fact that humans wouldn't be so driven to exist in a toxic state, they would feel an aversion to it for the most part, but there are cases where people can have power over others in such a way that they force others to exist in that way. And I think actually a lot of the world operates on patterns like that. I think that uh, in this society, a lot of uh, a lot of the ways that money is used is kind of in that way, and it's not maybe always bad, but I do think that that a lot of the way that job places operate is depressing people and causing them to resort to coping mechanisms and addictions and and even there's like a consumer market exploiting that. So it's kind of like this whole system of stressing people out through creation of potentially consumer products uh, and then having people consume them as a way to cope with their lives being so intertwined with uh, exploiting other people's addictions with their uh, place of work and supporting it. Like say you work at Amazon, that would kind of be supporting other people's coping mechanisms. And uh, so I don't know, I think that we kind of messed up in this way by exploiting addictive properties through marketing and uh, through advertisements, through making products addictive, like making junk food addictive, making video games addictive. And uh, we're kind of designing a society that is uh, building coping mechanisms while also uh, giving people the need to cope by having them work in the production of such coping mechanisms. It's this weird kind of balanced, uh, toxically balanced situation where maybe the need for such coping mechanisms further increases the more that people work in these places and also the more that people work in these places, uh, the more that they will need to cope, and then the more demand goes up, 
and so on. So more workers are needed, and yeah, now we have a kind of stasis where uh, it is just a cultural way of life now. Um, and I think a lot of people's job places is often keeping people alone for long periods of time, too. And a lot of people are getting so hooked into individualized coping mechanisms like video games that they are often becoming isolated, not all the time. Um, and I think that just in general, the internet and way of life of today is that individualism is peaking so hard that uh, isolation is quite common. And I think in terms of replacing social stimulation with addictions, I think it's kind of true. I think that there's a lot of coping that people need to do because of just kind of baseline traumaticness of our lives. I think a lot about a lot of people's lives is kind of just really stressful. Like, uh, the most basic commonality among us all is the idea that we're going to die and that we constantly have to address certain health problems uh, and, like, stay healthy in order to avoid this... Uh, avoid early death, right? And um, that's something that's kind of shared among everyone, but there are... Uh, there are also a lot of individualized stressors, like uh, abuse seems quite common in society. I think I would consider even things that seem kind of light and um, not even... Like, I'm not, I don't even mean extreme abuse, like hitting people or just outright screaming at people, you know? But even the way that bosses treat their employees and might exploit the power dynamics. I think that that's commonly abusive. I think there's pecking orders all over the place in society. I think even friend groups pick on each other in ways that are very harmful a lot of the time. And um, so I think that there are just generally a lot of things that people need to cope with. And I think just it's as simple as socializing can be very rewarding and we use this to cope. It's also possible that, well, well, before I say that, I'll say, so, so it's, so here I'm getting at the idea that it's possible that we might not inherently crave socializing. I mean, I think we probably do, but let's say that for some reason that it's not the case, it might be contextual to the fact that everything is very stressful and, um, we use that as an easy way to cope uh, instead of using something like drugs or whatever else. A lot of people are using video games and not socializing, so... Um, but I don't know how many people feel happy doing that. Uh, but I also don't know how many people feel happy just socializing either. Uh, it seems kind of complex. But anyway, so the other possibility is that we inherently crave socializing and that just simply the deprivation of this, we will kind of seek to fill the void and that this predisposes people to a lot of behaviors like addiction and uh, comforting 
tendencies, like even a lot of the things that we do to cope, like Netflix or video games, they often have the sense that you're socializing as part of the game or a part of the show. And I actually think that this is something kind of disturbing that I think Netflix is exploiting. I think there are, in some sense, targeting lonely people by giving them kind of these endless series that have character development in a way that feels like that you have friends and you feel attached to the characters in the show. And I mean, that might just be a way of telling art, but I actually, I don't know if I would say that. Like there's a lot of ways to create video products that are made for the intention of expressing art for whatever it might be. But I think it's pretty obvious that uh, these shows are designed to uh, make you feel the comfort of having a friend group and a tribe. Like people are kind of subscribing to fake tribes and then even on the internet and throughout their actual social lives, they resonate and gossip about what's happening in the show and try to make predictions about what will happen in the future of the show. And this whole culture centered around a lot of these shows and how the plot might develop. And I think it's a little bit weird. Like, I think we might have... It's possible that we have sacrificed our own potential social plots and dramas in favor of kind of just normalizing uh, these... Uh, artificial or fictitious social groups it's kind of it feels a little bit spooky it feels like we've like we're kind of centralizing a lot of our lives on these cultures like it's almost like these are fictitious celebrities right um and i think that a lot of people are moving away from having such dramas because a lot of people think drama is just inherently bad. I don't actually know if that's the case. Drama might just be something that arises from people being socially naive and also uh, kind of pushing the edges of boundaries that other people have and kind of figuring out what, how a social relationship could be developed. I mean, a lot of a lot of it, there's a lot of toxic drama as well, of course, but but I think there's also a lot of drama that is just people learning what it, what are the rules of being in a group, or what are the rules that other people have, and kind of just learning each other, and I don't know. So I think we might have lost that, and that people are kind of resorting a lot more to small talk and that the tendency for people to cope in society seems to be raising quite drastically, which is a little bit concerning. And, uh, yeah, so, okay, I'm going to move to the next question. So along that line of reasoning, we also get a lot of corrective information from normal socializing. You can't deviate too far from the beliefs of those around you, before you become ostracized or get punished. So there's pressure to conform. As a result, you feel more mentally stable 
and that's in uh, quotation marks there, so implying that it may not be actually stable. Uh, so you feel more mentally stable because you don't hold that many beliefs that make the world seem like a crazy place, or make you seem like a crazy person. So I think this idea is pretty interesting. Um, so I think uh, what happens a lot in the way that we develop social norms, I think we, so so it's, it's pretty much a given that we aren't in some kind of social utopia, right? Um, there's just conflict all over the place and people are suffering like crazy. And so it's, it's just clear that this is not a utopia. So if you consider that, um, I think it's also a given that, uh, that generally our social worlds are very corrupt everywhere you look. Like, I don't think that there are generally any kind of like, there's no perfect tribe of people. There's no perfect city, no perfect society, no perfect family, right? Um, I think we just simply haven't figured that out yet. So, um, so what I think happens though, is that people become very, they build tolerance the same way that might, people might build tolerance to drugs or whatever it is, or to pain or to the taste, the bitter taste of coffee, to spicy food, etc. Um, they build a tolerance also to the problems that they are surrounded by on a constant basis and they learn how to cope with it, and then it kind of becomes not really so much of a problem that they deal with. I mean, that kind of depends, I think, on the specifics, but in a general sense, I think that that's the case. And, uh, but what happens also is that we are very sensitive to the kinds of problems that we don't get exposed to on a chronic basis. So when we look at other people, we can more easily recognize how toxic and corrupt their situation is, much more than we can do it to our own because we've built this tolerance. And, uh, and I've kind of felt that this might be what happens in the case of something like the way that, the way that we assess other countries, like for example, um, when we look at, when a lot of people in America look at, let's say, China, uh, there's a lot of things that people will kind of meme about that it's like this really scary, horrifying place. And uh, a lot of the same people will think that America is pretty much this safe place that uh, that we we've kind of figured it out and I don't know, it's just generally a better place here. And maybe that's the case. I don't know. Maybe it even depends on personal preferences or something like that. Um, although I'll say right there that your personal preferences are probably dependent on actually being exposed and building a tolerance to the problems of your place and also just learning and familiarizing how to maximize the benefits you get from the system that you live within but um but anyway so uh so i think that 
that people from other countries, it seems clear that they look at America as like this really scary place too. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Like, uh, like I have friends that are from Canada and they talk about America with actual like legitimate worry and they are afraid to visit here. And, um, I don't know. And, and there's obviously like, I've seen people from the UK will kind of joke about stuff like that. And that, or like even right now during the whole situation with uh, the recent elections and the pandemic, people have memed in other countries about how bad America seems to be. And I think that, I think in general, though, a lot of places and a lot of people's circles do have a ton of problems. Like again, we no one has reached any kind of utopic situation. And of course, there's going to be different um, there's going to be varying levels of what's better. Uh, but I actually don't think that a lot of us are equipped to actually assess what is better because of the fact that we built tolerances and kind of grew up among the systems that we are living in. Like we've, we've literally kind of evolved our minds to deal with and maximize our situations. Um, okay, so, so let's move a little bit into this topic of conformity. Um, this is something that I've kind of focused on a lot in the past, and I think there's nuances to this. Like, I don't think that we can actually say that Conform, not conforming inherently leads to uh, social problems. Uh, maybe if you always don't conform to everything, obviously that's going to be a problem. But that's because there are certain things that you are not, not supposed to not conform to, right? Uh, but I think there's a lot of cases where not conforming can actually make you more valuable and uh, like it makes people potentially see you as special or uh, something like that, uh, novel at least. And uh, and there are times where like like obviously, even just talking about conformity, like I doubt that if I asked every single person if they thought completely conforming is a very good thing, I I think almost nobody would say that that's fantastic, right? Um, but that gets into weird things like, uh, like there is definitely kind of a very mild stigma, uh, to, to kind of, uh, it's, I don't know if it's necessarily actually conforming or not, but it is, uh, whether or not you seem essentially like a poser or something like that or if you are just copying other people, that is considered something that people don't value very much. Um, and people do value individuality also, for example. But that gets into weird things. Like there's going to be memes about what it means to be individualistic. Like that's where like a lot of people make jokes about hipster culture, right? And it's kind of like people talking about doing novel things before anyone else jumped on the uh, the conformist train or something like that. Um, 
So I think it's a little bit nuanced and it gets really tricky. And I think it's really important to consider like what is actually conforming and what do we consider to be just generally like the, like a kind of associated with the, the kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it. It's like a, the style of not conforming or the style of individualism, like a, a punk culture might be an example where that kind of people think of it as individualism, right? But then a lot of them are actually doing, they're kind of following the memes of the subculture. So it becomes something that is kind of conformist. Uh, so there's a lot of weird nuances. Um, so with not conforming, um, I think, so the viewer mentioned that you can feel more stable uh, if you conform and that the world may, uh, you may not feel as crazy because of that. I think that's a really interesting point that like your culture could be very well crazy, but the fact that you are conforming, you don't really feel crazy. And so feeling crazy may not be a matter of what specific beliefs or actions you take. Um, but instead, it's more about how much you are not being accepted by the people of that culture. So, like, even if you were an atheist among, say, Christians, you might feel like they think you're crazy for not agreeing with them. and uh, But you might think that your position is more reasonable. And I think that's quite common. Like, if you were hanging out with a bunch of anti-vaxxers and you think that uh, that vaccines work or something or that they aren't dangerous or something like that, uh, you might feel crazy among them. And also the anti-vaxxer, uh, obviously, every a lot of people label them as crazy. So even I would say both sides label each other as crazy. Uh, so it doesn't, it isn't really, in a sense, it might be about what people believe to be the truth, and that if other people don't believe in what you believe to be the truth, uh, you won't be called crazy. But I think even if you were to just conform without actually internally resonating with that choice that you're making, you might not feel crazy because no one is persecuting you. Like the sense of feeling crazy is more the sense of feeling persecuted and rejected. Um, and just feeling like other people don't accept you. So it kind of ties in with the whole isolation topic. Um, so let's see, I'm checking how far we are on the list. Okay, so we have a couple more questions about isolation and loneliness. Um, and then it gets into a new topic uh, about things like substances and addiction. Um, okay, so... Okay, so if you spend too much time not communicating with other people, you're more likely to develop delusional views of the world. Now, I think that is a little tricky. Um, hold on, so I'm going to keep reading, though. How does internet culture and social media affect this? 
look at QAnon or any number of online gatherings of people who subscribe to particular views of the world, regardless of the truth, value of their beliefs, what's remarkable about these phenomena are the uncertainty with which they come to hold these beliefs, the feeling of paranoia that the rest of the world is, uh, this is parts in parentheses, that the rest of the world is crazy, or the people are stupid sheep, or that the that most institutions are lying, etc. And that ends the parentheses. Uh, the velocity at which these belief systems grow in a person once they've opened up or subscribed, uh, I suspect that, so I'm still reading this by the way, I suspect that people who are lonely are more susceptible to being sucked into these communities where forbidden knowledge and fellow believers can provide a tremendous sense of belonging or meaning, so they essentially trade off integrity of their worldview, and in parentheses it says adopt potentially delusional beliefs, uh, and so they trade this away for belonging and a major reduction in loneliness. Yes, I do think that's the case, and I've written about this in the past, and also this has actually been taught in my social psychology classes a little bit, that, that basically they taught in my classes that extremist uh, groups tend to, like part of the problem with why it's hard to have people change their, or kind of leave these groups, is because they develop bonds with, they, they essentially form bonds and friends, and it's like, these groups are their family, and it's not easy to just tell people to stop having friends or family, right? That's basically asking you to radically change your life. Um, okay, so... So, moving back to where this question started, it said if you spend too much time not communicating with other people, you are more likely to develop delusional views of the world. I don't actually think that's the case. Um, I think you can spend a lot of time among any subculture that holds bad beliefs and you will um, be maybe prone to adopting them. It depends on a lot of other factors, but... Being around them will make you more likely to adopt those views, right? Um, and those can be delusional, and you will be spending time communicating with other people. So I don't think it's a matter of not spending time communicating with people. Uh, but I will say that most beliefs about almost everything are going to be wrong. I think that even just generally... Uh, this is something I've been thinking about lately in terms of, like, just, like, what truth can we even know about external reality? Like, maybe physics is getting a little bit close, but if you look at something like social psychology, uh, there's, like, this replication crisis where studies do not replicate, and these are studies by people who are supposed experts in studying social and psycho social psychological behavior, right? And that's a little bit concerning, but, but I think it makes sense that, uh, like, physics is really the base of a lot of things, and as you move up the ladder, things should be more complicated. But there is 
a little bit of a nuance there because we obviously evolve to kind of understand other people or at least operate with them and control each other and influence each other's behavior through speaking and through our own behavior, right? So so we've kind of evolved to kind of address social psychology, but that doesn't mean we understand ourselves or what's going on there. And it doesn't even mean that, uh, well, I don't know what I was about to say there, but, but I think the fact that there is this replication crisis isn't shocking. And I think that we need to consider the fact that oh, we don't, we generally don't converse about physics among, among our friends, among our family, in our job places, right? Uh, we talk about social things a lot of the time. We talk about each other's behavior. We talk about what we think that, uh, what we think about ourselves, what we think about other people, what we think about politics, what we think about society. That is what the majority of our conversations are about. And yet the people who are supposed to be experts in this, uh, it seems like social sciences and social psychology is a failure at this point. And so why would non-experts have it figured out? No, I don't think they would. And so I think actually the majority of our beliefs, I think for, for one, I think the majority of our beliefs are based on social things, what we think about how we work and other people work. And I think most of those beliefs are wrong. So I think it might be more common in some sense for people to be delusional about way more things than they actually have any understanding of a truth of reality, right? Um, so I think just at a baseline, most people don't really understand things about their world and their society and culture and even me i think that we are trying to do it and that's maybe a, an important thing to do but we should be cautious about our conclusions and i think that we might even get kind of a loose understanding of what's going on but i think that there's a lot of biases at play and i think that there's a lot of kind of uh like i think a lot of social reality is driven by confirmation biases and like, I think we influence other people to behave in the ways that we think they are behaving because that's who they are, but it's actually because of our beliefs kind of influencing them. And I think a lot of society might be like that. And that even that actually worries me about psychiatry, because we're kind of trying to formalize understandings of different aspects of what it means to be human. And like what can go wrong like we're kind of creating these spectrums of mood and personality and uh how sane people are and i get worried that like say just how just being influenced by memes of what it means to be crazy uh if you feel yourself being crazy that could make you become crazy in the same way that you believe uh is supposed to happen if you go crazy. I think a lot of the narratives that people's lives follow because of these kind of diagnostic narratives that people consume might actually be shaping their lives just because they believe in them. And I think that like it's kind of concerning because like there's this pressure way back 
for psychology to kind of take after medical science, right? We try to formalize it and make it a legitimate science. And the fact that it's really hard to study people much more than to study biology, I think there's like this kind of pressure to kind of legitimize what has happened or what is happening to people and what they're experiencing and just the psychology of people, right? But the problem with this is that I think it also puts a pressure on kind of fabricating a sense that we actually know what's going on. And I think this started really early when we had very little knowledge about all of this. Like we created this thing called schizophrenia before there was kind of any kind of biological support of what's going on with that condition, right? So we already kind of decided that there is this thing that exists and and so like i think part of the problem is that those early models uh, they create a sense of closeness to what kind of models we could create now if we just like what if we just had no concept of schizophrenia and we looked at brain scans and looked at symptoms again and tried to categorize and associate different symptoms in a much more granular way rather than rather than talking about like huge groups of symptoms that kind of seem to associate like that's what schizophrenia is right it's a group of symptoms and so uh, rather than doing that and associating it to like brain scans we could look at very very individualized things and what if we just came up with uh well, what if we just didn't even group them together? Because I think even that's a little bit suspicious. There are probably groups that go together for reasonable reasons. Um, but, like, like, say, for example, when they talk about the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, which is basically, like, anhedonia, cognitive problems, and stuff like that, low motivation, uh, lack of emotion and just this kind of symptoms it's usually not things like delusions or hallucinations or paranoia which those are the positive symptoms right so so these negative symptoms though they are really not that different from depression and if you look it up uh they do talk about depression in terms of negative symptoms too and they talk about ADHD sometimes in a similar way um, and I think this is like kind of problematic, like these are supposed to be supposedly very different categories. It's like, why is, why are those symptoms associated to all of these things? And why are they like, why is that considered part of schizophrenia? What if it's just that if you have hallucinations, it's very common that you become really depressed about what happens in your life. Like, like, in my opinion, I think that uh, from kind of what I, my take on the literature is that schizophrenia can be caused by many different things. I think, for one, it's genetics that predispose you to uh, various environmental circumstances, like, say, you might become more sensitive to the problems of starvation or uh, stress or sleep deprivation and trauma and other things so let's say even just with like 
sleep deprivation, I think some of the genes are going to make you more likely to become insomniac, and that normally if people don't sleep enough, they hallucinate. And there's already research about that, uh, that it's normal for people that are not schizophrenic to hallucinate under the case of sleep deprivation. And I think that it's possible that for various reasons, uh, people that get diagnosed with schizophrenia might have trouble sleeping, like they might start getting panic attacks at night, or they might be taking stimulants. They might uh, have genes that give them insomnia. Uh, they might have just not even thought about how, like, like sleep hygiene is obviously not something that we're built with, right? Um, uh, so the lack of it wouldn't be surprising to, to just be kind of even normal. Um, but so I'm not going to go on too much about schizophrenia. Uh, the reason I brought that up, what was it? Um, hmm. Starting to lose my train of thought there, but, uh, oh yeah, diagnoses. Like, so, so diagnoses and things like schizophrenia, like it's, it's, I think it's probable that that if, especially if you're labeled with schizophrenia, that that's very depressing. And I think also becoming depressed, I think that that predisposes you to becoming psychotic too. Like uh, maybe you're depressed and you become deeply unhealthy, or maybe you're depressed because you were traumatized and then uh, something stresses you out again and triggers you, and then maybe you get psychosis for like a couple days and then, I don't know, like there's a lot of different ways things can go down. And I think it's even possible that people can have psychotic symptoms even without uh, trauma and all these different factors. I think there's a lot of ways that one could get that. Like they could just have some unknown virus that that messes with mechanisms in the brain and makes it so you're like constantly on ketamine or something, you know. Like there's probably different ways that people get this. And I don't know, when when we classify people into whatever schizophrenia is, it's like there could be a lot of different things going on. Like, why is it schizophrenia? Why is that the word we use? I think that's kind of problematic, especially that we've developed this idea, like, I don't remember how long ago. I know it's, I think it's something like more than 100 years ago. There's probably different variations of craziness or madness that have existed far before that. Um... But I think that, yeah, like psychiatry could just be this machine that's creating confirmation biases based on kind of ancient conceptualizations that are just getting, uh, like even the research is being biased and a lot of it's like failing to replicate, uh, potentially because we are wrong about the way that we understand what's happening. Um, like the whole the whole idea that there's this chemical imbalance causing people to be depressed, that was, I feel, a kind of catastrophe. Like, like I feel like we're kind of living in this dystopic society in a way, and it would make sense for people to be depressed, but some people learn how to cope. And I think just people with depression might be unable to cope, or they might be predisposed to not cope, or they might have worse lives, or... They might have more boring lives. They might be predisposed to avoid exciting experiences. 
They might be scared of trying new experiences. They might be predisposed to sit in bed and then that might cause like other symptoms later. And um, I don't know. There's probably a lot of ways to get depressed. You could be infected with a virus again, as an example. Um, okay, so I think we should move on to the next question because this is getting a little bit far out. I think all that stuff's really interesting, though. Um, but trying to keep on track with these questions. Okay, so... Um, Social media, so this is the next question. Social media, or just generally socializing online, can be dangerous because, one, there's an infinite supply of information, true or untrue, which, with which to feed your initial bias with not much filtering or pushback. Two, it's easy to dehumanize other people or deal with low-dimensional versions of them, only taking take parts of them that you like from them like their opinions, whereas in real life, you kind of have to interface with people, interface with another person more before you start importing their beliefs. Also, it's much easier to idolize or character, characterize people, uh, and difficult to determine how to allocate your trust or attention to uh, other people. Sorry, hold on, I was just checking something, because... Uh, a little concerned that I wasn't recording. That would be nuts. Um, okay, so uh, three, if you're lonely or isolated in real life to begin with, if your internet persona dominates your day-to-day -day consciousness, you might uh, be perpetuating your loneliness or getting out of touch with your surroundings. So there's a lot of things I actually, I actually think there's a lot of nuances that need to be clarified on this one. Uh, so, uh, with number one, that might be true. I'm not totally sure I what I think about that one. Uh, so I'm kind of just going to leave it there because it doesn't trigger any sort of immediate reaction in my brain. Uh, so number two, though, it's easy to dehumanize people. Um, I think that is true, but it's a little bit complicated. We also already do this in real life. We dehumanize people from other countries. Like, that's how I think that we often can ignore problems that aren't directly relevant to our immediate surroundings. Like, we end up having, like, say, our government starts exploiting and just bombing other places, right? And uh, so I think that, or even, like, we... We will go buy fast food when the same amount of money might be able to save someone's life in, that's like starving in another country. And uh, we seem to just completely not care about that. So I actually think it's normal. And I think the internet might even raise awareness about some of those problems more. I think more people are getting concerned about the ethics of other people's problems because they're being voiced so loudly. Um, but I do also think it's kind of revealing this problem of uh, that we do dehumanize each other if they aren't immediately valuable to us or not. If there's no immediate consequence in our lives, we think there's no sense of responsibility 
And that might be fair. It's kind of hard to say. Like, it's not necessarily every person's job to become a hero for all of the dying people of the world, right? But I don't know. It gets tricky. Like, I don't know what to think about that. Like, why is it not your responsibility? Like, why, like, say, if you play video games, why is it more right for you to do that than to save other people? I don't know. And that gets into weird territory, like the kind of uh, libertarian ideology might be the opposite, where we can just kind of manage our own problems. And uh, I don't know where I fall on this spectrum. I mean, I'm already doing certain things that are attempting to reduce suffering of, like, animals, for example. I don't... Uh, I am like vegan for example right but i also am not addressing a lot of other problems like uh like say with technology like the production of technology is exploiting people undoubtedly and i use technology quite a lot i'm not protesting it or anything uh but i mean i try to buy uh like used products and stuff sometimes uh, but I don't even I'm like honestly actually poor so like I mean I'm not like buying crazy amounts of technology in the first place um, but uh, anyway so I think just generally I think people are mostly nice to their family and their co-workers and their friends and that's because all those people have power in their lives. If you betray a friend, you might lose social credit in your circle, or you might lose any kind of benefits that you had for having that friend. Um, obviously, with your family, you can lose the same thing. You can lose your job in the case of co-workers. And, uh, but then it gets weird because people who are bosses might more easily treat their employees worse and with less empathy because they have the power to do so, and the employees do not have as much power to do anything about it. Um, and so even in the case where people are in close proximity, they don't always have empathy. Uh, it deeply depends on power dynamics, and a lot of power dynamics among friends are close to mutual. At least that is what people seek out. Uh, once it starts getting parasitic, a lot of people will cut off the parasitic friend, right? Uh, with family, there's a little bit of these weird, like, social norms that pressure people to have an allegiance for no reason to their families. And so I think a lot of abusive situations arise from that. And uh, a lot of the times, the children of the parents are also financially dependent, which becomes something kind of like... A boss relationship but it's a lot more weird and intimate and so there's a lot of weirder ways that I think abuse can take hold in those cases but at the same time because of this allegiance expectancy there the children can also fight back and exploit the parents a lot of the time uh, because the parents feel compelled to just unconditionally support the children so there's a lot of weird things that happen with family that get kind of interesting but so generally though 
this topic of dehumanization, I think people generally just do it when there's no obligation to each other. And I think the internet might facilitate speech communication, whereas, like, I mean, you're not going to go around talking to people who are strangers on the street, right? You might small talk with them, and same with coworkers, but... I mean, again, this situation with coworkers, it's not a fair comparison to the internet because there's no, like, random people on the internet, there's no pressure for them to please you because you don't have power over them. And so maybe that is part of this, that you just don't have power over people in the internet. And uh, maybe that's something we should address. Maybe it's actually good if everybody has a little bit of power over each other. Uh, and I guess that's what, that's what, like, I don't know, reporting people might give people a minimal amount of power. But, uh, I don't know. And I think the other case where people dehumanize each other is if you are not part of the same, uh, grouping, right? Like, if you are the outgroup, I think it's much easier to dehumanize and bias against those people. But I don't think it's anything necessarily about the internet that that is different from real life. Like, a lot of people will talk about how there's no face-to-face -face interaction, and they think that this causes, like, some change of how our Darwinian or instinctual system interacts with other people. I'm not actually that much of a fan of it, uh, and I think we can effectively somewhat communicate through emojis and various other ways of communication, communicating emotions. Um, and I don't think that like the majority of problems is that people are misreading the tone, because that's kind of what that position implies, is that these interactions are a problem where you're essentially unable to read the tone, right? And that makes me think like people are saying, like, like, it's how people talk about if you put a period at the end of your text message, it comes off as aggressive, right? Um, I do think that happens a lot, but I don't think that the majority of, like, internet culture war is because of something like that. Um, and the majority of abuse and bullying, I don't think is because of misinterpretations caused by a lack of social feedback. That's something I think is really important to consider because especially because that position is so popular um okay so number two that's kind of addressed now let's go on to um number three uh this idea of the persona dominating your day-to-day -day life like your internet persona i don't think it's bad i actually think that this is great I think that everyone has these character caricatures and facades in many groups of their lives. In their workplace, they have some kind of formal character that they play. In their individual, like uh, like their uh, romantic relationships, they are playing a different character that they are allowed to get much closer with people, right? And... Um, I'm not a fan of this idea that there's some real self. I think that our, our what we want and who we are kind of changes a lot of the time. Um, 
although there is a pressure to be consistent, uh, like people might judge you if you're inconsistent about your values, for example. Um, but I don't know, this idea of the true self, I think, can be almost toxic at times. Like, people are trying to find themselves. I think it's more about building a character that best leads to what you want out of life. And a lot of people are building a character of their ideal imagination of themselves. Um, and a lot of people are also building a character that's based on how much utility they can exploit uh, through that character because that character is valuable. That's probably the most, I don't know if it's most common, it's very common because there's a lot of pressure to survive in the world. So there's also this pressure to, I think the more survivalistic and uh, maybe Machiavellian that, that a person's world is, then the more that they're going to be focused on that way of um, building a character, trying to, uh, like, like say how like people might want to be this wealthy, always happy, successful character, right? That is something people are aspiring to, and that is partly driven by... The fact that having such a character is valuable to other people or something, or it's at least perceived to be popular and uh, that you get more out of it if you do that. Um, I think that the internet can actually help people escape toxic problems in their own social circles. That's kind of what I feel like happened to me. I was, I would say, almost in borderline abusive uh, relationships and I don't think I don't fully blame the people that were around me but basically when I grew up I came from a really bad situation my mother commit suicide when I started college and even before that I was sent in and out of foster care because of uh, chaotic parenting and problems in the home like violence and uh and i ended up going in and out of foster care and uh so my life was really crazy and i lacked a lot of normal skills um and so i don't know when i started dating uh i was in a relationship that um I don't know, for a long time, this person, I think they viewed me as lowly, the kind of, it's kind of like the opposite of the character of being successful and wealthy and all of that, right? And it is kind of true that that's where I was. I was kind of low, but the thing I realize is so many people are operating under so many different beliefs about what that means and the implications of that character like uh, that that kind of character might be predestined to always be poor or that that's headed that type of character heads for a life of failure and i think there's a lot of confirmation biases that i was uh, placed into and that people had this tinted lens of viewing me and it really deeply affected me it affected me because 
I don't know, I really struggled with figuring out what, what to do in school. And people thought that, I don't know, it just seemed like I didn't have my life together. And from my perspective, though, I was still kind of grandiose. I thought that I can, I don't know, figure things out in science and try to make a contribution in that way and change the way people see about uh, how our psyches work and just a lot of goals. I don't know, there was a lot of different goals. I wanted to work in AI at a point, even. Um, but I took a long time trying to figure out the more kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it, like like figuring out how academia works and figuring out how to perform well in school and how to pay taxes or just basic adult life things. And I really didn't have it together. And uh, that made me kind of really do poorly in school. And then there was pressure for me to get a job to uh, to do things in my relationship. And I just got really derailed from school because of my own problems, my own naivety. Um, and trying to like work and learn how life, basic things in life work, like even... I was like trying to figure out even things like like just washing my clothes, like keeping my stuff orderly. It was it was really a mess. And um But the the weird thing about this is when I got onto the internet, I wanted to do this so I started doing the blog because I wanted to get into a university, but it seemed like I'm just this random person that doesn't have anything going for them. And I kind of wanted to make the blog as a way to, like, potentially give me better opportunities to allow me to get into a university. And, uh, so I started doing that, and then the way I was received by the internet, they, they saw me so much differently than the character that people around me saw me as. And I actually wasn't really bringing this up, this kind of conflict of perception. I didn't bring it up to the people around me and like even at my home I was living with my grandmother and the view that it seems she had is that she pitied me and, and she was really good like she did a lot for me and it was changed my life but the views about where she thinks I am in life it's like I don't know like she was almost concerned about me going to university and she seemed to think like like are you sure you want to do that like and she, I don't know she said things like remember where I came from and that really hurt it felt like she basically thinks that there's not hope for me and then even with like so I was never really that close with my father but I mean, he's helped me a lot, too. I want to put that out there. I think these people are good people, and I think it's understandable how all this played out. But, uh, like, with my dad, he was not comfortable signing the, uh, uh, what's the word? He, he wasn't down to co-sign for the loans that I took out for uh, university once I got accepted, because he, I don't know, 
I don't fully understand. I think it's because he thought he would have to pay the price later, like if I failed, and uh, stuff like that. And I don't know. All this just really hurt. And then even with the girl that I was with, she was having really little faith that I could do well in university and that I was going nowhere. And all these people, it's like they're expressing, even if some of them mean very well, they're expressing that they think I am incapable of succeeding. And it just felt like literally just it felt like everybody around me sees me like this. But then online, people were like treating me almost as having high status. And it was really kind of jarring. And it made me really upset towards the people around me. So this is getting a little bit... I mean, I I don't know. I imagine that this might be interesting to hear, but I don't know if it is. Uh, but so, yeah, it's getting a little bit tangential here. Uh, hopefully you don't mind, uh, I guess, to hear a little bit about like what kind of struggles I've been through. Um, but uh, anyways, so... I don't know, it was really jarring the way that people would view me differently, and this actually kept happening. Different subcultures on the internet would treat me differently, and it was shocking. And each person imagined me to be a different person, and it really aggravated me, really. And it, I don't know, when I went, so I went through university, and I did really well. I basically got straight A's the whole time, and that's better than I've ever done in college. And by the end of it, though, I don't know, I was just completely angry that the influence, it felt like because I went to university and lived alone, away from all these people, and it felt like I grew a lot by not being constantly influenced by these perspectives that I am this hopeless case. And I feel like I spent so much time just coping and feeling just depressed and the influence of other people was so much stronger than I imagined and I think that things like the internet can really help people escape the box that other people put them in and I think that's really important um, so yeah that's kind of the story there and I mean I'm honestly still trying to kind of escape the influences of that. I've like graduated now and I have a bachelor's and in psychology and now I'm kind of living back with my grandmother and I I don't know. I think it's just something about living here I feel there's just there's a lot of weird nuanced complications that I don't know. And I'm basically trying to find a way to support myself without sacrificing the potential of getting in to a PhD program and sacrificing a lot of the opportunities that I'm working on right now. And it gets weird because, like, for example, I've been working on a study with a friend that I have um, at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And I don't know, I try to bring this up with my grandmother and she doesn't really understand the nature of the internet and she doesn't understand um 
the kind of opportunities that I'm getting. And she's like warning me about uh, the dangers of it. Like she's really kind of like she brings up these articles about people getting scammed on the internet and she tells me I shouldn't really associate with these things or I should get advice from other people at like my school like should I be associating with these people and different things like that but like I don't know like just to even like give an example of a story that kind of bothered me but it's not even like this is completely my fault though but someone uh well I don't even actually know if I should tell that story I won't because that maybe maybe that person is listening I don't know <laughs> I'm pretty sure they do uh so I just won't even talk about it but and don't worry it's not a bad thing it was just something well yeah I'm just not even gonna get into it it was just something that was like an opportunity and I felt like it couldn't work, uh, but yeah, anyways, um, so that's pretty much my current dilemma, is that I'm kind of, like, I feel this intense pressure to, like, I think my grandma thinks I should not take any of these opportunities, and I feel really scared if she knows how involved I am in these opportunities, and this kind of... It's problematic because she, she wants me to take more of a traditional path and I don't know what she imagines that I can do because uh, like I could potentially get well I'm not even gonna go into this let's go on to the next stuff that was enough personal emotional things I hope you found it interesting or applicable to your lives if you relate to that feel free to reach out to me I'd be interested in t chatting about it uh, okay So this question, this next one is kind of interesting. What is the relationship between loneliness and different classes of substances? Do depressants like opioids and benzos make you more lonely? Do stimulants help you make help help you become more social and reduce the experience of loneliness on the long run? Are lonely people lonely or depressed people more likely to have bad trips on psychedelics? Uh, if so, are the potential benefits worth it? What drugs are more likely to feed escapism and further isolation? Which drugs are more likely to actually help in the long term, and how? Uh, I think drugs can induce more neural annealing, which is a concept from the Qualia Research Institute. If you haven't looked it up, just type neural annealing in Google. But yeah, so I think drugs can induce more neural annealing and be more beneficial. Okay, so what I think about this. Uh, I think it gets a little bit tricky. I think that actually social reward is driven by certain opioid chemicals. Uh, so it's possible that you could replace the, uh, the kind of urge to be connected to people with opioid related chemicals. Not that I think that's a smart move. Uh, and that might also cause a person, because of various factors, cause a person who takes opioids to become more isolated because they're replacing uh, that reward. Um, 
And I think the stigma might, the, the combination of the stigma and the replacement of social reward might drive people away from others. So do stimulants help? Maybe. So what I've noticed about stimulants is I have felt intensely lonely on them. I actually don't think that I've felt that kind of loneliness since stopping them years ago. Uh, I remember I would take them and become like intensely craving of social experience. And often I would become dysphoric over it. And so I do think the dopamine is motivating maybe some element of social motivation and it might the lack of it a lack of fulfilling it might become really dysphoric so i think it could go either way like you said it could promote actual social bonding and maybe that helps or it could amplify the stress of feeling like you're alone and cause like some weird problem with um becoming more stressed out like maybe it would generate something like a borderline personality type of pattern if you use stimulants potentially uh, and it goes wrong maybe it would cause you to become more socially addicted to people i don't know that's an interesting idea though are lonely people or depressed people more likely to have bad trips this is not my experience i mean like, I don't know. I don't know about the feeling of loneliness, but I know that being alone hasn't really done that to me. I, I mean, I've only really taken psychedelics in an alone context for the most part. Uh, and a lot of the time it's been good. I've had bad trips, though, so I don't know. Uh, I usually only take them when I'm in a mentally bad place, too. So whether or not depression has an effect, I don't know. I mean, probably does, but I usually am using it to, like, I usually, the way I see it is if everything is going well, I actually avoid them because I'm scared of throwing anything off. If I'm doing bad, I feel like there's less to lose and I'm becoming desperate and then I do it. Like if I'm like getting almost psychotic even, I will do that. And I've had benefits from that, which I've kind of talked about a lot in the past. I don't want to get into that whole topic because I'm not even sure what I think about it still. But uh, if you look it up on the blog, there's topics where I talk about that. Okay, so I'm going to kind of move to the next question. We're almost to the next section, which is much shorter. It's just a couple personal questions, and then we will kind of wrap things up after that um so loneliness is very tricky to fix because at the end of the day you need to actively form real lasting connections with other beings and yourself it's often not obvious how to do that you can't just wire ahead your way into not being lonely so that is a statement not a question uh and i would agree with that um I mean, whether or not you can entirely replace socializing, I mean, maybe you could wirehead people into just living in some kind of matrix coma, you know? Uh, I don't know whether that's good or bad. I mean, 
the knee-jerk response is that seems very potentially bad. Uh, but whether or not it actually has consequences that we personally dislike as individuals, I don't know, actually. Like, the thought of it seems dislikable, but is that because we imagine it as some kind of horror movie? I don't know. I think it would be important to explore the nuances of why that wire-headed, a wire-heading utopia is bad. Uh, and if you don't know David Pierce, look him up. He kind of explores the wire-heading stuff a lot and the ethics of utopia. Okay, one deniable, this is another statement, uh, one undeniable benefit of the internet is that it's easier to find interesting people, but turning them into real connections is still a challenge. I agree. I think part of this is because of social norms on the internet, like the thing that I don't like that I see on a lot of chats that I'm in is people will devalue the connections they make there. They'll be like, well, well, these people are just internet strangers and like, I pretty much have no friends and these internet strangers don't care about me. I think that's a bad way to approach it. I think that you can have very valid connections and I have many. I pretty much only exclusively have really deep internet connections right now. And I've met a lot of these people in real life. Uh, a lot of them I met on the internet first though. And so I don't know, I think that it's very valuable. I think there are benefits to having in real life connections, like just going out to eat is fun or just hanging out and laughing together and watching movies and kind of bonding is great. I think there are ways we can do that virtually, but a lot of people, I think that they, I don't know, there's stuff about that where I think people think it's just not supposed to work, but I think it can work. Like if you watch movies on Discord, I think you can make it like it's in real life. It depends who you're doing it with. Like if it's strangers, then yeah, it's weird. Um, but I think you can laugh and have fun over voice chat or video chat. Um, but there might be norms holding people back and forcing them to kind of behave and these kind of normalized uh, video conference behaviors or something, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I think you really can make connections. Okay, so this is the last question on loneliness. And then we're going to move on to a couple quick questions that are personal about drugs and addiction and yeah, that's what it seems to be with. And about delusions, it looks like. Uh, so some of that might be interesting if you're still hanging out, hanging around for that. I will disclose to you how insane I've been. I guess if that's if that's how I, I, that's how I understand what the questions are going to get into. Okay, so people who've had a lot of experience with loneliness, depression, addiction, trauma and have overcome them to some extent, have this almost different mode of communication where it's more raw, like they're more open to talking about real stuff. Maybe this is because they were forced 
sort of forced to learn how to spend time in and navigate their own mind, particularly in response to suffering. Why is it that people who overcome suffering become more relatable? Uh, just real quick to answer that, uh, maybe you have undergone that kind of suffering, but they might have also, there might be like amplified things about human, normal human things that they've learned about that apply to you and everyone else. Maybe it was such a problem to them, like you said, that they had to learn how to cope or learn about it. What characterizes this openness to communication? I mean, that gets weird. I feel like with trauma... Um, like, someone who's undergone so many different, differentiated experiences that are so far from what normal people experience, I think it forces them to learn how to talk about those things, or else they will become feeling isolated and you won't actually know that that's what they've undergone potentially um so i think it kind of it's like learning how to talk like it's like if you're a leftist learning how to talk to the alt-right which i kind of do stuff like that at times i try to learn how to talk to very different people and i honestly feel like no one really shares all of my beliefs and I often feel isolated because of that. Uh, like even with the vegan thing, that's something that really taught me a lot because it forced me to become different from others in a way. Not necessarily forced, but I was suddenly ostracized. And uh, that taught me a lot about what it's like to have basically a lot of people dislike me for what it seemed to be like no reason. And it learned... it. He taught me how to navigate a lot of that, which I've written a great deal about in articles like uh, like anti-narcissism. Uh, one is called Vistopia, the vegan dystopia. Uh, and one is uh, the polarized mind. Um, there's also the arbiter of truth. Um, kind of a lot of posts about that type of stuff. So I'd urge you to go check that out if that's interesting to you. Um, I think that just being unrelatable to people forces you to either, like it's kind of a survivorship bias there, uh, it forces you to either figure out how to relate to others or become trapped and become mentally ill. Like potentially that's the path that differentiates something like schizophrenia where the schizophrenic is just totally like trapped in a bubble where they're maybe on drugs or don't know how to survive in the world because they've been so alienated and some of them formed really radicalized beliefs um but some might have had like genetic differences that cause them to become alienated. Uh, I think there's a lot of factors. They might not even be alienated, and maybe they're just really stressed. Maybe they have some weird tumor that is causing hallucinations to come up, and they got diagnosed schizophrenia. Like, again, that topic is just really complicated. 
Okay, so uh, now, uh, let's see, I'm gonna take a water break. Okay, so here comes uh, some of the personal questions. So here, I guess here's the first one. You experiment a ton with substances. What's your relationship to addiction? Were you ever concerned or scared about your relationship to psychoactive substances? Uh, you've had bad have oh no you've had bad trips or scary unnerving experiences on substances. What made you continue experimenting despite those? Um, okay, so let's start with addiction. Um, so with addiction, mm, I mean my views on this are probably pretty controversial. I mean I think that well, okay so. I mean, I don't think addiction is always that bad, but I think it can be. I think it can be very bad for a lot of people. Uh, in my case, what I've noticed when I was... I was very worried about being addicted to Adderall, and I took it every day, and I got withdrawals. And But I would kind of shame myself about this, and... Mm, I don't know, I did have a lot of fears, especially early on, about that kind of stuff, or that it would permanently change me, which it may have, um, but I also have noticed, I've, I mean, I've tried things like opioids, and I've used them daily and had withdrawals, but... I didn't find them necessarily hard to stop, except for the fact that there were withdrawals. And But there are, like, nuances to this. Like, I was never... Like, so one thing is that the onset of the effect supposedly makes something more addictive. And, I mean, I was never, like, snorting anything or injecting anything, which are very fast me methods of intake. So... I don't know. One thing I did notice, though, is with cannabis, that was vaporized, and that was very addictive to me. Um, that was more addictive than opioids or stimulants. I felt like I deeply wanted to use it, and it felt like, I don't know, there was times where I would stop and I wanted to, like, almost die because I wanted... I don't know, partly, mostly because I was getting depressed from the withdrawals, but, um, I don't know, so, um, I don't know, I felt way more craving, like a, almost like intensely passionate craving to use cannabis because of how interesting it seemed to be and how it made everything feel, um, but with things like opioids, I don't know, I, it's not like I was nodding out. I mostly actually used it for productivity and creativity, and that seemed to work sometimes. I used things like tyanaptine for depression, 
um, and it seems to work. And I tried higher doses and high frequencies, but I didn't like the fact that it gave withdrawals. And then I figured out that uh, when you have no tolerance, if you do, say, like tyoneptine uh, once per day, it only lasts like technically two hours, but I don't notice any withdrawal or um, problems, I guess. And I find that lower doses, like just the fact of avoiding any kind of come down is extremely useful. Like I pretty much will just come down to baseline. So I find that like exploiting high doses of things like opioids, I think is a mistake. I think it's actually a user error. I don't think it works better. Um, like I think one way to quickly be on that path is if you are taking like street drugs and using random changing doses and then you find yourself not being sensitive to the lower doses after doing higher doses or if you use it like the same way that people use social drinking and you um kind of just use more and more to just keep going with whatever task you're doing or like how people will like smoke nicotine as they're doing projects and just keep doing it until they finish the project uh i think that's sketchier um but I am frequently addicted to like caffeine and oftentimes tyoneptine, but not at, with tyoneptine, it's pretty much not to the point of getting any withdrawals at all because I'm not even taking like as much as you're supposed to for the recommended medical use. So like, it says to take three times a day at like 13 milligrams and I don't do that. So um, I don't know, and I would rather not do that because, I mean, I've done as much as five times a day, and that didn't really work out. Every time it wore off, I was more dysfunctional. I would get more, like, paranoid of interacting with people. I would become depressed. Uh, pain became worse in general. Like, I was sensitized to pain. And that's not happening when I use very, very small doses once per day. Instead, I think it just pushes me out of negative looping for enough time that I kind of normalize a different way of thinking. And then I just don't happen to get back into negative thinking between doses as much. So it's just kind of a way to generate optimistic biases, I feel like. Um, but I don't recommend anyone do that. I don't know. I obviously am not a doctor, and I don't know. So was I ever... Cons oh, the other thing about addiction that I want to point out, go read Tribalism of the Addict on my blog if you haven't. Uh, there's so many things about addiction that I think are not really about repetitious use of chemicals. I think that there is a narrative that people believe in the same way that we talk, we talked a little bit about this in, in terms of psychiatric diagnoses. There are also narratives that we talk about in relation to what it's like to be an addict. And I think those are dangerous. I think stereotyping 
the the kind of how things play out i think that's not the right way to go about it and that is what i learned in my experiences is that i became very scared of those narratives like when i was using adderall and even the early days of when i tried uh, things like kratom and chineptine and it kind of did play out like that in ways but then like over time i went through cycles of starting and stopping over and over and i kind of just shamelessly did this i wasn't really concerned about like what it does to me not so much like i was trying to be healthy in my life generally but i felt that they were enhancing my life most of the time and i was extremely curious and kind of like studying what these things did to me a lot of the time so um i don't know i just had this kind of passive attitude towards it and i think not stigmatizing myself is was really important and not letting it become like this crazy narrative you know like um like, you know, not like spiraling outward and or downward into this rock bottom state, you know? I feel like that's a narrative that people subscribe to. And I think it's possible if you really mess up with drugs, but uh, I also believe that they can be used responsibly. Like, um, I mean, you can spiral out on buying pokemon cards too and just spend all your money and go homeless or something crazy uh maybe that's a lot not likely to happen right but um like i never did anything ridiculous to get money for drugs i did do crazy things to get money for technology though which is kind of interesting like i would suddenly be passionately obsessed with getting a synthesizer that i wanted or an iPad, or a computer. And so I would do crazy things like buy things off Craigslist, resell them for more, and just generate money within like one or two days really quickly so that I had enough to buy like that thing. And uh, so I don't know, like I feel like believing that that's how your life is supposed to be if you take drugs, that's how you get there. And I think when I I didn't kind of conform to those beliefs. And I think that that protected me from bad outcomes. Um, but I do think that I get addicted to a lot of things and I live in very repetitious loops a lot of the time. And But I think that could be depression too at times. I don't know. Okay, so was i ever scared yes i get scared before i take shrooms i get scared before i try any kind of hallucinogen but i also get very curious and very compelled to do them um and i also think shrooms actually benefits my life but i get really scared that it'll ruin me someday but i'm not sure about these stories that I hear. I feel like there's probably a lot that goes into those cases. And I really want to know what the factors are. Like, I don't think it's just a random gamble, right? It's not like a random number generator comes up and it, if it lands on the number 33, 
you have a bad trip that ruins your life or something, right? I feel like that that wouldn't make sense. So I feel like there has to be something that goes into it. I've had a bunch of bad trips, uh, but they weren't necessarily scary. They were extremely depressing and made me want to die. Uh, but And I mean, I got really scared that I got caught or something like that before too, but it wasn't like... I don't know, like, it wasn't like I'm scared to lose my mind, but I mean, I thought that I would lose my mind, but for some reason, I don't become super scared. I just kind of think, welp, is this it? This is it? I lost my mind. And uh, that doesn't really... I don't know, I think it's been too many times where I've been in that state that it's not as impactful. And... It just kind of usually wears off, you know, so... But in the very beginning, yeah, I think there were, like, times where I was very scared about going insane, and I thought I was, like, schizophrenic, but... Like, on that topic, like, again, like, schizophrenia is such a... Such an annoying topic. Like, I used to have schizophrenic symptoms way before I tried any hallucinogens, and... Uh, it was much more cliche schizophrenic back then. And we're probably going to get into that, because I do see one of these questions is about delusions. Um, okay, so, so yeah, let's move on to the next question. Uh, well, just to address, what made me continue dis experimenting despite those? My curiosity, a sense that I ha feel like I maybe have a duty to... Uh, like certain things like like sometimes I'm taking chemicals because I need to function it feels like uh, like for example for months I was depressed and I just decided maybe I have to do something like Tynaptine to snap out of it or psilocybin but I didn't I don't know I get scared of psilocybin a lot even though it goes well almost all the time even the bad trips I feel like aren't really that bad and have led to benefits, but, um, yeah, so there's, like, that kind of sense that I would continue taking chemicals because I feel like I, I owe the world production, so, yeah, um, but then there's also where I feel like I am one of the people that needs to explore what these things do and to try to explain them to people. And I think that it's important in just understanding psychology in general, like you're kind of amplifying mechanisms in the brain and seeing what that does is important. So I really feel that's important. So, the next question. I know you mentioned how weed began to cause more psychotic or dissociative symptoms. I have somewhat experienced this. Did you stop playing with THC completely? Did you have difficulty stopping? So, I already mentioned, yes, I got really addicted to weed. Uh, when I was doing weed, I was obsessed with becoming psychotic, and I thought that this had benefits, and it might I felt it was a trade-off. Like, I felt that there were certain trade-offs in the way that I make assessments about my perception and about 
the way that I think, I thought it was causing memory loss and kind of holes in my, uh, what is it? Um, it would cause holes in my thinking, I guess. Um, like I would say things that would normally contradict with what I would usually believe and not catch myself doing it. But I think that the same at the same time, I do actually think that there's benefits that is that are often overlooked because I don't think people can explain them that well. And I think that the benefits were partly derived from the same pro things that are problems. Like, so if you've ever read my article, Cognitive Atomization, we kind of talk about the idea that you can split up uh, consciously, you can atomize your cognition by kind of blocking different memories that are holding it together, uh, like kind of conditioned responses actually is what I think it is, like conditioned mental responses to ordinary context. So I give an example there where I kind of talk about um, like what it is like to take out the trash if you are in an atomized state, which is, or more specifically, uh, kind of how I have actually experienced on cannabis. Like you might say, like say, instead of saying, hey, I went to go take out the trash, you say, hey, I grabbed a plastic bag full of various kinds of objects that we've deemed, uh, to be disposed, and I began uh, maneuvering two limbs of my body uh, in order to change the location of my self in relation to the living space that I inhabit uh, so that I can place this plastic bag within another container that has a square shape. Um, so that some strange device or machine will come around uh, when uh, the day uh, the day and night cycle has surpassed seven times and remove those uh, items that I wish to be disposed of. Like you can see how that's all true, but we definitely don't talk about it like that. And I felt cannabis would kind of change the way you see things so that it is like that. Like you stop immediately jumping to the conclusion that that everything is just simple and that you got it figure out, figured out. And it kind of makes things more foreign and mysterious. And I think that that perspective actually led to new insights about the world, but sometimes also led to error, er, uh, let me think, uh, erroneous insights, right? Um, so I think it goes either way. Uh, but I think that there is a risk that you're taking that you can have psychotic conclusions. Um, and I would get psychotic a lot. I would have delusions that people were stalking me, that they made a bunch of fake Facebook accounts and were pretending to be my Facebook friends and talking to me to get secret information. Uh, um, I've had, uh, 
this one time where I took dabs and I was driving after it seemed to be wearing off. Wow, it's really irresponsible. Don't do it. Uh, but so I was using the GPS and then the GPS is talking and it sounded totally menacing. It sounded like it was just like, you must turn now. And like, it just sounded like this really aggressive voice. And I thought that it was doing this intentionally, knowing about my state of mind and that maybe it was under the control of some sort of kind of social engineering cult in society that has access to that kind of power. And uh, then I also thought that the cars on the street were aligned in a certain way as if, uh, like I thought that they were props. They were put there so that they were specific car models that would look like they were cop cars in a, at a distance, but as you get closer, you realize they're not. I thought that they were like hand-chosen cars that were designed to look like uh, cop cars, but not. And so I don't know how much I believed this, but I kept thinking that this could be true. And uh, during this experience, I also had a jump scare experience where I thought something was like some animal or something was in front of my car, but there wasn't. And then the adrenaline suddenly peaked and my vision just went crazy. Like it changed really intensely. And in the same kind of way that I feel I've experienced in other psychotic states, uh, like I feel like it actually becomes more like depth perception might change and things look like, it's like as if I have less ability to simplify my perception and it's like stripping layers of automated experience so that now I have to really use my full perception to see things because I can't rely on my habitual reactions, I guess, my habitual perceptual conclusions. Uh, so I think it kind of turns us back to a more uh, undeveloped perception, which also happens to look more complex oftentimes, and I think it often will bring this emotional processing layer of perception where you kind of like look at, like if you look at objects in the room, they kind of have this emotional significance, and I think that normally we're really numb to that, but uh, in this state it seems like like everything has like a really intense sense of style and art to it. And I think that's because they were trying to get a sense of the world. And after we already have the sense of the world, I think we just kind of don't do that. I don't think there's no point of doing that. Like, like if we just stereotype and categorize everything based on like minimal cues and have like certain behavioral responses and mindsets that we activate in response to, like if you're in what you perceive to be the ghetto or what you perceive to be like some rich area or uh, an academic formal setting or just whatever, like, you know, different settings. Um, I think we've really just have an automated stereotypical response in adulthood. But I think during cannabis and during childhood, there are there is this kind of sense that you're trying to 
get a feel for the environment. And I think it activates really instinctual emotional components while you're doing that, um, which is supposed to maybe help with learning and conditioning your response to it. And then later the emotion aspect kind of dies. But yeah, so yeah. And did I have difficulty stopping? Yes, it was the most addictive substance I've ever done. Um, but after about two weeks, I was no longer really addicted. After about even a week, after like three days, I would say the cravings are really reduced. Um, but it honestly took almost a year to really feel like I'm okay again. Okay, were you ever concerned that you were more delusional than you'd be comfortable with? Did your experimentations with psychoactive substances appear to destabilize you or bleed into your life past the duration of your trips in a way that was concerning? Well, I think that certain delusions under the effect of drugs are caused by kind of blocking certain memories that hold together the frameworks of your conclusions about reality. So... I think that uh, it doesn't necessarily erase those memories, though. And uh, you can come with alternate conclusions about reality, but once the drug's worn off, I think a lot of times the memories come back and they contradict your conclusions. And then you decide that the conclusion is just a drug-induced one. Um, but I also think there are a lot of conclusions that don't necessarily contradict your framework of reality but they do maybe not fit in with the popular beliefs of our time and uh i would say that like most of my delusions that were really ridiculous were when i was uneducated they were religious delusions and i was religious and raised religious i had prophetic delusions and thought that maybe i was possessed by the devil um, I had delusions that other people could read my mind, and so I developed, like, tactics of censoring my mind. Um, I used to have telekinesis delusions, thinking that that was possible. And this was all through middle school to high school. And I hadn't tried really many drugs, except I took Concerta, for ADHD and I also experienced a bunch of trauma and I was forced to isolate myself at the same time by my mother. Um, so I think all those played a role in that. But I mean like when I stopped being religious I kind of did it by concluding that I'm not really sure that those things can be concluded based on what I learn uh, through my senses, through science, and through uh, the judgments of other people. Um, and I think the more that I learn, the less room there is for some of these kind of more absurd ideas. And I don't know, I think, though, that there are a lot of people who aren't even in education or in academia, and they're not trying to, like, learn everything or something like that. Uh, which was one of my goals, <laughs> absurdly enough. And I mean, I still would constantly want to learn. But, uh, 
I think that that fact makes it so that people's supposed delusional conclusions will be more not in alignment with what academia says. Like, that's really what a lot of delusions seem to be, right? And I think that can happen either through having a temporary amnesiac effect on memories that guide your academic conclusions, or it can happen because uh, you never learned those things, and maybe you were always conforming, and then you take a drug like psychedelics, and it stops you from just conforming, and you come up with your own ideas, and that's where it becomes dangerous because you're not an expert. You don't, you're not qualified to come up with ideas about the nature of reality, but I actually don't think that you should stop doing that. You should just learn how to be open-minded if that's something you do and you're not an academic or whatever. I think I would promote doing that and continued exploration of reality and your mind and society. Uh, don't, don't stop just because you're not an expert. Uh, but realize that you're not an expert and account for that. Realize, don't become narcissistic. Uh, don't become arrogant if other people shut you down. Um, but ask them to shut you down in such a way that proves to you that you are uh, that you should convert your belief system to theirs. Um, I actually don't think most people are skilled at doing that. They are not experts in doing that. So that's kind of where a lot of problems set in because everyone just gets divided and they can't persuade each other to each other's belief systems and there's just this polarization. And uh, yeah, that's partly because people don't really know, they don't have the skills to deal with that situation. And that's one of my goals is to really get people to consider the ways of dealing with those situations. Okay, so, I mean, like, so the question was actually, did I have delusions that were concerning and bleed into my life? No, I don't get concerned about delusions, personally. Uh, if you do, that's okay. You, If you want to be ashamed, uh that other people will think you're crazy, you can do that. Um, or you can debate people and try to uh, see if you can either convince them or have them convince you. Um, you shouldn't be close-minded if you have a delusion and you're aware of it, I guess. Uh, I was always kind of aware, like, I mean, with telekinesis, I was aware that it might not be true. Uh, even with my religious delusions and my thought-broadcasting delusions, I was kind of aware that it could be not true, but I did take action. I also used to keep getting delusions that people poisoned me, and I would get really, like, uh, hysterical a little bit. But I knew that that might not be true, too. I was always open. So I would recommend everyone be open. Um... Uh, read The Polarized Mind, if you haven't, this is kind of gets into my thoughts on delusion and polarizing people and how to deal with disagreement. Because I think disagreement can actually provoke a pathway to something like delusion. And just going back to earlier, like I think everyone's social beliefs are practically like delusional beliefs. 
at least in the sense that they are wrong beliefs, potentially held with conviction even. Um, but beliefs that I've gotten through trips, I don't know, I haven't honestly had crazy trips. I haven't had like that many beliefs that I developed through the trip, but I do get crazy beliefs all the time. Like I think one of, like just the fact that I was getting delusions before ever trying these things and I like seek that sort of thing. I seek for new ways of looking at life and I really want to see if they can be in alignment and validated by uh, philosophy and science. So um, that's kind of the way I operate. That is one of my goals with operating. If people are afraid of delusions, I think, I think this fear of delusions is also a fear of delineating from consensus belief systems like i think a lot of people are conforming because they don't want to look crazy not that they like a lot of people don't believe that the earth is round because they've deeply explored this on a scientific like level it is because they religiously trust nasa and maybe they should i think that's fine if they do that um but they wouldn't want to like explore this question open-mindedly. I know for a fact that people are not okay with openly considering whether the earth is round or flat. I think that there's so much shame in the idea of being a flat earther that uh, that most people will just completely avoid that, right? Um, so I think that's bad. I think we should stop attacking each other and inducing violence upon each other for being wrong. Like this idea that people are punished for being wrong about things is bad. It's like even academia does this. Uh, people's parents shame their children, right? And there's just like a whole cultural effect of shaming people for having bad ideas. And uh, I think we should be, I think there should be a different way to approach this. I think that we should um, kind of explore ideas and explore why they're wrong, not not use classical conditioning to train people to be afraid of certain ideas. Like that's literally what we're talking about here. Like when we talk about like when this whole this whole vaccine versus anti-vaxxers or like this whole flat earther problem, a lot of this comes from. Uh, just punishing people, right? The idea is to make people afraid of being a stupid lunatic. <laughs> so, I don't know. And I think part of what drove me to these things uh, kind of is open openness, maybe. Uh, I don't feel afraid to be schizophrenic. I mean, I've been afraid of it. Occasionally, I'm afraid of it. Or I'm afraid that maybe I'm just nuts and all my opinions suck, which I don't actually think is the case. I think I do have maybe some opinions that are wrong, or even how I said, uh, I think the majority of almost all of our opinions are wrong. Uh, so at least they aren't nuanced enough to be valid. Uh, okay, so mm, I don't know. THC was the most delusional substance for me, and its effects did not always linger that much, but, I mean, like, some of them did. And I even think that the memory loss induced by THC did linger, too. 
It's a little bit sketchy, to be honest. Um, but I, I don't think that obsessively clinging to your memories is always good either. I think that when you lack the memories is the moment that you begin to explore reality in new ways, and that's why people kind of get delusional. And I think that that can be very valuable, though. Um, but I don't currently use THC. I'm afraid of it right now. I'm more afraid of it than psilocybin. Like, I can easily take psilocybin, and I usually just get benefits, and I feel like it has even cognitive-enhancing effects afterward or even at low doses. At low doses, the effect is just motivational. Um, it causes me to become motivated to think, to act. I usually will, like, clean my room and do stuff like that. I will start writing. I will get inspired to do new projects. Um, but then, even afterward, I feel more in tune with a sense of, like, memory or maybe working memory. I become kind of stimulated for a couple days, like more awake feeling in a sense. Uh, like I've had times where my vision even seemingly kind of cleared up, like it was having noise or um, was kind of fading out, I guess, in some sense. And I was like depressed and borderline getting, like I had thought disorders and then I'd take psilocybin and then all of a sudden... Like, I'm thinking faster, thinking kind of, seems clearer, uh, thinking more generally, like, I don't know. Like, it's not like I lose my sense of critical thinking. I enjoy critical thinking, so I think that gets amplified, too, afterward. I think generally whatever I'm motivated to do can become amplified afterwards, so... So I'm kind of not really afraid of psilocybin, but THC consistently was psychotic and consistently made me dissociate, consistently made me lose my memory. It was really intense, and I don't think everyone gets that, but I definitely do. And I still actually think some people can get it if they have low tolerance and take a huge amount. I don't know, though. Maybe there's like some specific weird biological uh, setup that is different like potentially maybe the cb1 receptor might have heteromers that only uh have certain effects and with certain genes that's a possibility i think okay but yeah i kind of am pretty comfortable with being crazy except if i'm scared that it will make me underperform in different contexts i mean i feel like most of the people I know have various strange beliefs that I disagree with and I don't see them as like I, I don't know like I doubt that they are scared to be themselves right I don't know like I maybe I shouldn't even think like this though let's just move on to the next topic uh, considering that spending time alone and talking to others can both be beneficial in moderation uh, how do you try to strike a balance between the two in a way that facilitates learning growth and well-being do you enter different modes, like solitary or socializing, with explicit intentions, and do you get the desired results? Or do you just happen naturally? Or do things just happen naturally and you just do whatever you feel like doing? It is that one. I operate like that, but I do... Something I do intentionally is I have goals that I care very strongly about, 
and I have intellectual goals that I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed with thinking correctly. I'm obsessed with perceiving correctly and obsessed with solving various puzzles. And so I have those motivations, but I tend to kind of operate kind of hedonistically in a lot of ways. I struggle to in have intentional behavior. That is one of my main deficits in life that's been there for kind of a long time. Like, I mean, that's why I was taking ADHD medication, but I stopped doing this and I try to just use coffee and I try to train myself to be functional without it because I think that there will be cardiac effects in the long run. And I didn't like the sleep problems and I did go psychotic on amphetamines or Adderall. So, I mean, it wasn't like crazy though. Like I think I was actually functionally psychotic and I don't know, like some of the ideas were probably useful or interesting, but it's just such a massive time investment. So I don't do that. Like I feel like it takes years to recover if you decide to take stimulants for like a year. And I also feel taking them in the short term, there's like still a delayed recovery period and it's just way too much time. And I actually feel like it's unproductive in that sense. And just, I don't know, it's such a commitment. Um, so intentional though, I wondered if some people do that. I also wonder if some people rationalize that they intentionally do it. I don't know, but people probably do it intentionally. Like I've cut off my uh, social chat rooms recently because I was getting really addicted, like constantly on it, talking to way too many people all the time. And sometimes it just resulted in negative emotions. Like, I don't know, like sometimes people respected me in there. Sometimes they stopped respecting me for some reason and that would upset me greatly. Um, or it's like, it's more like, I feel like specific people consistently don't respect me and they might suddenly start voicing their opinions more. And then the people who respected me previously and would like have me in high regards will suddenly change their mind, it feels like, and be critical of me. Uh, they might still think that they think I'm, I don't know, like smart or whatever, but it, but it ends up really eating at my uh, ego, I guess. So I've cut that out temporarily and uh, I do stuff like that. Um, and I, in terms of real life, I get really lonely and I can tell that it's taking a toll on me because like recently I had a four and a half hour discussion with someone that I care about. It might've been three and a half, uh, somewhere around four hours discussion, phone call with someone that I've talked to a couple times and it was kind of amazing the effects it had on me like I became inspired again and I feel like I need those interactions like I think I need interactions of where people have me in high regards and they have faith in what my goals are and that I can accomplish them I think that alone makes me start doing what I need to do to accomplish them and moving back to like the, the circle of influence I had before I went to university, it was like the opposite of that. That was the problem. 
And so, like, having this person socialize with me, they, they've really helped me. And, like, that's kind of what I want to do with this platform. I really, really wish to get some... Like, that's kind of selfish, maybe. Um, but even as a community, it would be interesting to get people who have more... Like, a more... Like, that, like we can intellectually know... Uh, the benefits of thinking like this, right? Like, like I'm telling you that uh, that this happened to me, right? That I um, noticed how profound the effect is when people believe in me versus not, and and I even think that has like a lot of implications in life with all the different stereotypes that apply to you intelligence like how we view other people's intellect or uh like even like how there's like this racist stuff that people get into about intelligence and race or something i feel like that will have implications that really affect people i think in the way that racism is currently harming people in america uh i think that this has implications for, like, how people succeed, or, like, even the incel culture is really bad. It is people who are committed to believing that they are hopeless. Um, so, I want to create a community that's different than that. I want a community that, and I'm going to, I'm probably going to make a specific podcast about this uh, next time, maybe. I want to make a community that can amplify each other's goals and believe and like kind of belief in each other, but I don't want it to just be this kind of cheesy, sappy thing like I believe in you, man. You know, like I want it to be uh legitimately like trying to help people accomplish their goals. Like I've been watching this guy, Dr. K. I don't know if you've seen him. He's kind of doing therapy on people in a way on Twitch and YouTube. And he's really helping people, like even the viewers are getting general things that apply to their lives. And I think that it could be something like that, but maybe a little bit different. And also just like talking people out of their beliefs that are self-harming. Um, and help them adopt ones that are beneficial. And having a community of people that's good at doing this with them among each other. And I think in my own selfish way, I want to have people that help me, right? <laughs> and if that happens, this project will get crazy, right? Like all this stuff that we're doing, we'll be able to accomplish much more uh, down the road. Like I have really grandiose goals in mind. So the more support we can get on these projects and even like potential collaboration, uh, then... I think we can take it really far. Uh, some of my goals that I have in mind as examples would be like, I want to do kind of these interesting experiments um, uh, that can get kind of tricky, but I want to do experiments. Uh, if you've seen like desummation, the post, uh, I outline experiments in there. It's kind of tricky to pull that off, and I'm not going to go into any of the details about this right now, but I think it would be interesting to kind of do what Qualia Research Institute is doing, or even potentially collaborate with them on a project if if I can really 
like uh, lay down a really organized plan, right? Something to study, something that they will value, and it could be just generally valuable about perception and stuff like that. Um, but more generally, I want to get, I envision a really active community, uh, maybe doing stuff on Twitch, having guests talk all the time. Uh, what else? I have, I don't know. I'm kind of zoning out on this now and getting mentally fatigued about talking for who knows how long. I feel like this was hours. I don't know. But, um, so, yeah, I think this is going to be kind of where we end it. But if you'd like to support these projects, uh, just head on to the Patreon and I give some special access content there. Sometimes I'm uploading experiments that I'm doing, like with a EEG lately. Uh, see, that's an example of experiments I want to pull off, but I want to do it... I don't want to just experiment on myself, right? I want to, like, pull off something bigger. Like, I have a friend who might be able to help me make a Flickr machine. Uh, he's an engineer, and I was thinking of trying to have people... Uh, use this to help me do my experiments on the flicker mechanisms uh to like study flicker fusion for example uh, i think it would be so interesting like to test nootropics uh like ampokines that would be so interesting to see if those alter flicker fusion thresholds um so yeah so yeah if you want to support this project and help us grow and uh, get more projects going, and um, help me do that, uh, just go onto the Patreon. Yeah, um, so thank you for listening. Uh, this I kind of like this format of the podcast. If you have questions similar to the ones that were asked here, uh, try to get in contact with me through either the Discord, a DM on Twitter, or um, which you can find in the link in the, in the, in the, what is it, the description below, and, uh, contact me anywhere you think you can find me, uh, there's a contact section on my blog, um, and yeah, so, hope you guys are doing well, I want to really try to, like, somehow spread positivity with the platform we have going here, like, I really want to talk to people about, like, problems kind of like dr k has kind of inspired me but i don't necessarily want to like do therapy on people i want to just see if we can like go through the ways that people think about their problems and see if there's anything they can do i'm kind of curious about it but i think we need to be really careful about the way that we do that um but yeah anyways this is getting rambly it's time to end uh have a good day and see you